No, course. you've got to be on the episode. I'm not on the episode. You're on I'm the episode. I'm going to leave you with a capable... Put my teapot in. Capable pause no. of our noodle. Em, what you don't get is you're on the episode now. This is it. You'll be in the cold open. Oh, good. Very good. Maybe. Ollie, what are you writing? What am I writing? I'm actually... I'm drawing a house. I don't know why. I just am. Manifesting a, a house. If I draw it and I want it, it will arrive. I've always said it. I always draw houses, and uh, and then I. Tr- this is really psychotic. And then I draw flames, like <laughs> up again. I'll sh- <laughs> I'll do one now, and I'll I'll take a picture and I'll send it to you, like what I do. But I do the the same thing, the same drawing every single time. And I've done this since I was like fourteen. And but it can be it can be a skyscraper as well. I can do that in flames. Um, but yeah, every single time it's a house on fire. Isn't that mental? One time it was a yurt. Yeah. <laughs> An igloo. An igloo's <laughs> on fire. That would be brilliant. Can you imagine? Somebody it's just think melt. of the penguins. <laughs> hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins during the reign of Queen Anne. Queen Anne? Is that the rabbit queen? The rabbit queen? Yeah. No, is that the one that gave birth to loads of kids? She's the one who had loads of miscarriages. Yeah, but there was a whole rumour that she gave birth to rabbits. What? No? Am I making that up? I don't know. Have you seen the favourite? No, that's the Olivia Coleman vehicle. Yeah, so there's loads of bunnies in that, and I because I looked it up when I watched the film, and they they were just not very nice about her not being able to conceive. So they made up these awful stories about her sort of giving birth to bunnies. Oh bless her! No, she she just miscarried a lot. It's a very sad story. I mean, it is. Yeah, Queen Anne. She's not a very well known monarch, which is a shame because you know she's she's got quite the story really. She ended up being last... carried around because she was so corpulent. She's last last of the uh, Stuarts as well, wasn't she? Was she the last of the Stuarts? She was. She yeah. came after. Um, well, yeah, because she came after Mary and um, William, didn't she? William of Orange, and then there was her, and then that was that, and then we well, moved on to the Georges. And who am I thinking of? Right? No, she definitely was. Hmm. She was the last of the Stuarts. Yeah. Well, this this story begins during her reign, because Thomas Topham was born in Islington, London, at some point in the year 1710. I cannot be any more specific than the year, because his family were working class, and so there wasn't really any need to record more accurately than that. No. We've given birth to a a burden that we have to feed and clove. And we're we're not happy about it. The child Mm. doesn't seem happy about it, but we're on to six kids now. That's all you really need to know. To provide some specifics, though, the only specifics I could find, his father was a carpenter. Fancy. Not a skilled carpenter, no. Not uh-huh. a fancy one. Um, not so skilled that he was making furniture in the classical Queen Anne style with the cabriole legs, mm. which I found out means bent outward at the top and then inward at the bottom. That's a cabriole leg. Okay. And, of course, the, uh, the the light shell motifs that are also in the, the, the lovely sinuous curves that are um, apparently hallmarks of the Queen Anne style. I did a little bit of looking at the furniture, 
It, it looks very light considering how large Queen Anne was herself. <laughs> so was was this furniture specifically designed for or by Queen Anne, or was it just the style of? I think it was, it was just when the, she was on yeah. the throne. It was what was in vogue during during okay. the years of her reign, and it became known as Queen Anne style. Hmm. Yes. Um, so he wasn't making that kind of stuff. He was more into you know the the fixtures and fittings that were needed. So door frames, cupboards, you know, really functional shelving, the 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 stuff that you need, but you don't really worry about how ostentatious it looks. Mm-hmm. So you know. It wasn't the best carpenter in the world, but he was good enough that his family were less likely to fall into complete destitution than than some others. So he's not quite at the bottom of working class. He's somewhere. He's middle middle to top in working class. This man. Yeah, I mean, we all need door frames and we all need uh, fixtures and fittings. So yeah, yeah fine. he's always got work. They're not. He's not going to get paid a lot for the work, but he's mm. always going to have some work. Hmm. And, you know, having a son, his fortunes were looking up because he could make that son his apprentice, which would allow him a source of almost free labour. Yeah, I was just about to say that, free labour. Well, no, it's almost free because you do have to feed just enough so that he doesn't die. So there is a there is a small running cost to that yeah. child that's only going to get bigger as he gets bigger. Fuel. Yeah, you you need to fuel the child daily, I've heard, mm. to get best performance out of it. Yeah, but you don't need to give him a lot. Like, life of bread. Mm. Fine. And as soon as he popped out, young Thomas, it was just a waiting game for Topham Senior. He just needed Thomas to reach an age where he could safely wield a hammer and saw. So he's looking he's looking at his newborn babe in his arms and he's going, right, as soon as you get the required hand-eye coordination. Which is what age, would you say? You've got children. What would you say is the... I mean... The acceptable age... Well, thinking thinking about my son, who's four, he's not quite there yet. Okay. And because four's a bit too early, it meant that Thomas would not start his working career while Queen Anne was on the throne. Okay. Because she died on August the 1st, 1714. So Thomas could only have been four years old at most when Queen Anne sadly died. Mm. But even then, at the age of four, his days as a freeloader were drawing to a close. And as the Georgian era dawned, so too did Thomas's working life, heading off at the crack of dawn with his father, well before the age of seven. Oh, okay. To complete various carpentry jobs, because I think that's another thing. When you're working for your parent, essentially, it's even earlier that you're. Cause yeah. It'll be like, oh, you have well, to just get up and go with them anyway. Yeah, it's like childcare. It's like, well, I'm t- I'm, someone needs to look after him, and if I happen to, you know, get him to do a few little odd jobs. Was I used to love going to work with my mum. Yeah, there you go. Mm, and it didn't yeah. feel like work at first. That's how they trick you into it. No, so my mum used to clean um, this. Uh, it was a laboratory, but it was it was in an old like Ooh. massive country house, and um, called Dermal Laboratories in Hitchin. Um, and it was beautiful. Like it was all like spooky, and it was just this old converted manor house that was like a had a laboratory kind of built onto the back and like I used to go there in the evenings when she'd clean and, Do you know um, when she was cleaning did she often run riot. hook corpses up to was, was uh, your no. mum somebody's Igor? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Ghostbusters was based on my life. <laughs> Honestly, now, it was the best building ever. 
Well, yeah, it's it's a country house with a lab attached. That sounds pretty cool. Mm. Now, we can assume that the vast majority of Thomas's prepubescent duties consisted of carrying raw lumber, soaring through massive logs by hand, and acting as a human vice whenever his father commanded. And I say we can assume this for two reasons. Firstly, Thomas became ridiculously strong for a teenager during that time period. So buff. Beyond buff. Mm. We're talking scary levels of strength. And secondly, because he quickly decided that he would rather do literally anything other than become a carpenter. Because his dad had made it seem like the worst career choice ever. You get that quite a lot, don't you? Where people kind of want to break away. I don't want to go into the family business. I want to be my own person, Dad. Well, it feels like, yeah, in this instance, his dad was like, finally, I've got someone to do all those tiring, annoying, repetitive jobs that I don't want to do. Carting stuff around, you know, holding stuff together so the glue can set, all those kind of boring things, sawing stuff off. And Thomas was like, well, I I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. This is... Soul yeah, destroying, back breaking work, and it, the next opportunity that comes up, I'm going for that. Yeah. Now, after a decade of sweating under his father, so no more than 17 year old, and he's already got a he's already got a decade of carpentry behind him. I mean, yeah, yeah. I go, but then if you if you're only living till 35, 36, then yeah, actually, half your life. Yeah, you've been a carpenter. I mean, I've not even been a nurse for 10 years yet, and he. He, at the age of 17, has like a 10-year career in carpentry behind him. But he did take the first alternative opportunity that presented itself, which just so happened to be the position of landlord of the Red Lion Inn. Okay, so how can you be a landlord if you don't own property? No, it was a it was sort of paid staff position. So somebody owned the pub and wanted somebody to, to move in to, to run it. Oh, okay, so you would become... Sort of like the agent yeah, for the, the owner. Yeah, the brewery owns the pub, um, yeah. and he then works for the brewery to, to run the pub. Got you. Okay. At the age of no more than 17. He might have yeah. been 16 at the time that he became landlord of a pub. And Where's think, this, the Red Inn? Yeah, the in Red Islington. Lion Inn in Islington. I don't believe okay. it exists anymore. But just the idea of somebody that age being given free reign to run a pub. I mean, he, I mean, he must have been great in job interviews. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if he's buffing as well, he's probably mm. like everyone's a bit like either a intimidated by him or b like he's quite chiselled probably, and everyone's like, oh, he's a handsome chap. He'll sell more booze. Oh yeah, than, people like, come in other to see people. Him. Yeah. Well, the pub itself was situated close by in Islington, so close to where he lived, between the two big London asylums, St Luke's Hospital and good old Bedlam Hospital. Mm-hmm which yeah. we covered on this show all the way back in episode 11. Yes, and do you know what I learned from that episode? And I tell everybody that the um, Imperial, the Imperial War, Museum, War Museum is in... The section in the middle is um, part the... of the asylum. Yeah, the third one. It's not this one. Yeah. But isn't that interesting? I tell everyone. I'm like, did you know? <laughs> like, uh, I think that's before I even knew you. People with, people with mental health issues were chained to the walls somewhere around here. Isn't yeah. that fun? Mm. Anyway, back and to now learning about a, death. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the machines of death that they now have here. So much so much nicer. I mean, that place must be haunted. Oh, definitely. It's 100%. a war museum that used to house the insane. There must be some, some amazing... It's only one section of it, though, isn't it? It's not like the whole thing. 
Yeah, but I mean, residual hauntings, ghosts, they'll be all around where the, where the old buildings have been knocked down. You'd imagine that entire place would be a hot spot. Yeah, there's a bit of the Berlin Wall sitting outside a bit. Oh, so they're starting to import other There's other also a bit of the World Trade Centre. Oh, no, shut up. There is. There's a bit of mangled World Trade Centre in there. So they're there, just trying so. to create the, the centre of paranormal activity in the country now. They're just bringing in other cursed objects and places we'll with We'll have long... German ghosts, we'll have German trauma, we'll have American ghosts and American trauma. Ah, oh, yeah, there's brutal machines in there. They're like, this, this gun killed 1,000 people. Right, a second. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and it was used for 10 years. Just yeah. work that out. But yeah, so it's, it's situated between St. Luke's and Bedlam, which is a nice place to be. And this proximity to the insane may have put some people off going for the landlord position. But as Thomas and all the other Islington natives knew, the area of Moor Park, where the two asylums sat facing each other, was well known as a place where a lonely gentleman might be able to rent some company. Oh, okay. Gentleman company or lady company? Well, you know, catering to all. Okay, fine. And the proximity of prostitution added to the fact that this was the period of time when people would pay to see the inmates, in the same way we visit zoos, Mm. meant that there would be a constant stream of people passing by the Red Lion Inn, who would likely feel they needed a drink, regardless of which of the two activities they were involved in. I mean, both are strenuous activities. Well, you go, you go, and you watch watch people who are clearly mentally unwell, and you probably come out and feel like you need to wash away that memory with alcohol as mm. soon as possible. Yeah. And I imagine it's the other way around. You know, you're about to go and visit the prostitutes. So you need a bit of Dutch courage. <laughs> I need yeah. to get good and soused, and then I'll yeah. I'll go off and find myself a, a lady or gentleman friend. Depending. Mm. Thomas, he loved being a pub landlord, compared to being a carpenter's apprentice. It was a great, great job. Having spent his childhood being treated as little more than a sentient tool by his dad, he was always keen to to chat to the customers, to get to know his regulars, and to show off how strong he was. Because I think you're right, I think people started to comment, ooh, I bet you're strong. Mm. And he started to go, oh, I don't know, and started to, you know, try lifting some things and showing off how strong he was and he got a reaction yeah. from that people going oh oh look at you and your rippling muscles and he, he getting a bit that. flustered yeah. yeah he was like oh look at look at this power i have over people they're really impressed when i lift the heavy thing i should do this more <laughs> and when i say strong i'm talking really really strong despite being only five foot ten and weighing 14 stone or around 90 kilograms if you prefer I don't know which way you want to go. I know we've taken back control from the EU, but we may still use kilograms. So I use stone. I don't know what a kilogram is. Well, 14 stone is about 90 of those kilograms, so there's a good place to start. (laughs) Fine. Fine. Uh, It is reported that Thomas was capable of lifting well over four times his own body weight. Wow, that's impressive. Which would put him within the realms of the world's strongest man competition today. And we're talking about people in the World's Strongest Man competition who've done nothing but train to be strong men, as opposed to Thomas, who'd just been lifting lots of wood for his dad. He was a grafter. He was freakishly strong, is what he was. Mm. Over time... But his dad, his dad wasn't like massively strong. So it wasn't 
just the the work that he was doing that made him. No, like... no, th- there was some freaks of gen- genetics in there as well. I think we'll we'll get to a bit of that, but yeah, it was just this perfect storm of he was somebody who was predisposed towards building muscle, uh, and his dad had set him to doing all the tasks that would build muscle because mm. he didn't want to do them, um, and it created this physique that, that Thomas was rightly proud of. And over time, as he continued to show off, he began consolidating his demonstrations of strength into something akin to a stage show. Okay. So amongst other things that he would do, he would uh, roll up pewter plates like they were paper. So metal plates, he just, in the palm of his hands, just roll them up. Wow. And he liked to lie between two chairs uh, and have five burly men stand on his chest and stomach. So he'd be supporting all that weight just with his core. That makes me cringe. What about if he crushed? Well, he he continued chatting to the crowd like it was nothing. He would even apparently delicately sip from his wine while these people were dancing (laughs) about on top of him just to show how how nonplussed he was about the entire thing. Oh, I do this every day. What are you talking about? Well, fine. Eventually, Thomas became so focused on his performances and the admiration that these brought him that he kind of forgot about the day-to-day running of a pub. <laughs> and naturally, the pub began a slow decline towards closure because it doesn't matter how many people you're getting in there, if you're not selling them the alcohol because you're too busy showing off to them, you know, they can it can be packed every night, but you're not really going to be making the money that you need to. Mm. And he wasn't doing Bad. stuff like his you know, inventory and accounts. Bad business, mm. yeah. He barely noticed that the money he made from his performances was barely covering the costs, as he was too busy coming up with more and more elaborate ways of showing that he was super strong and manly. It was becoming clear that his ego, being stroked, was much more important than being financially solvent. Mm. So as long as he had just enough money to feed himself, to keep up his protein-rich diet so his muscles wouldn't waste away, he didn't really care about the rest of it, because he was getting all of these people coming in and telling him he was great and that's that's all that's all the fuel he needed that's going to make you feel good mm. at the age of 23 thomas left the confines of the red line in altogether and made his way to the little dividing wall at the center of moor park after all this would allow the largest possible crowd to gather so they could tell him how awesome he was when he what do you think he did uh, when he, what would he do? He would arm wrestle. Oh, no, nah, that's too. That's too small. He, he he wants the people at the back to be able to see what he's doing. Um, I don't know. When he would beat a horse in a tug of war. <laughs> that's that very specific, isn't it? Well, very specific. I think it's 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 a big show of strength, though, isn't it? If you're straining mm. against a horse and winning. He planted his feet on one side of the little wall and he gripped a rope that was attached to a horse which was being encouraged, unsuccessfully, to walk in the opposite direction. Okay. So the two the two were straining against each other and he held it fast. So that, that one horsepower gasped. was not working. Well, that's, that's, you know, we can say that he is definitely uh, producing at least one horsepower. This yeah. is a man capable of producing one horsepower. Which I think makes him sort of slightly more powerful than Citroen 2CV, at least. <laughs> oh, everyone used to have... Can you remember the, the Citroen Saxo? Everyone, you, oh, everyone yeah. had them. They were like the death trap. 
That was one right. of those standard issue boy racer cars. There were about three or four of them, weren't there? But the Saxo was definitely in there. People don't lower their cars like they used to. So there was a period of time, wasn't there, that everyone used to sort of modify and lower their I, cars and like put the exhaust and stuff on the back of them. But I, it doesn't. I don't see it anymore. Oh, we've got one near us that is incredibly low. Mm. And he actually parks on a, a driveway that's on a hill, so I, for the life of me, can't work out how he manages to get it onto his drive. <laughs> it's one of life's little mysteries that I'll probably never solve. So yes, he's producing at least one horsepower, and the people were very impressed. This big crowd of the the poorest of the poor, probably some uh, asylum inmates who'd managed to get out for the day, some prostitutes were probably in amongst the crowd, and, would you believe... Sir Isaac Newton. No way. His experimental assistant, John (laughs) John Theophilus de Zagulas. Greek? French. A French Huguenot, (laughs) in fact. Okay. I'm just going to call him Theophilus from now on because it's my favourite part of his name. That's hard to say, isn't Mm. it? Say it again. Theophilus. Theophilus. Theophilus, like Newton, was a member of the Royal Society and, like Newton, was a bit of a polymath. Amongst other things, he is known to have built his own planetarium, assisted in the planning of the first Westminster Bridge, which became the second bridge over the River Thames behind London Bridge, lectured on philosophy for King George I in English, French and Latin, designed a machine to explain tidal motion, wrote papers on mechanics, hydrostatics, pneumatics, optics and astronomy, and developed theories of friction and adhesion. Which so not did, much then. Well, he did that as a contribution to the scientific field of tribology. Busy chap. Yeah. He, he did a hell of a lot in a hell of a lot of different fields because he just had more time than most, it seems. His mm. day lasted for 36 hours, not the traditional 24, <laughs> and he took full advantage. And he also invented time travel. Oh, are you there? Are you? Yes, are you? I'm still here. Sorry, my computer just glitched out. Then I was, no, I was talking. I didn't say. I wait. No, I didn't hear anything. Oh, okay. We're okay. It's you gave away too much with the time machine. Mm. He's come back. He's come to find us. It's like you Maybe. can't put that out. Yeah, and that I was a crash. Glitch. Your computer. Theophilus yeah. away. <laughs> At least mine's not overheating yet. Not yet. I will listen for the telltale fan sounds. Yeah. But perhaps most importantly, Theophilus was the man responsible for designing and installing a more efficient fireplace for the House of Lords. I mean, if okay. that isn't a career-defining moment, you've improved the heating system of the House of Lords. Yeah, okay, fine. Keep them old people warm. Mm-hmm. At lower cost. I mean, we really need him now to help. Yeah, he should be Where inst- are you? installing these things across the country. If he if he does have a time machine, that's what he should be doing right now. He's going around quietly installing better heating systems. Yeah, hundred percent. He had also somehow been finding the time to undertake a study of the movements of the human body when working as a machine. How does that work? Well, it, it's it's looking at movement essentially um, under strain. He was writing mm. papers on how, how the body reacted to, to, you know, strenuous activity. Yeah. And he took one look at Thomas Topham, straining to contain a wild stallion. 
and he knew that he had stumbled upon the perfect human tool for his studies. So he's like, I'm, I'm trying to explain how the human body moves, and I have this sculpted poor person that I am sure I can convince to work for me as a model and as a, you know, an, a study that I can use to show my findings. And what a fine specimen study oh. it would be. Yes. After the performance was over, Theophilus, he sought out Thomas, and he asked if he would like to come to a meeting of the Royal Society in order to help Theophilus to demonstrate some of his theories of human movement with his rippling muscles and perfect physique on display for the great and good of British society. Because this, this society, it, you know, contained many members of the House of Lords, members of the House of Parliament, nobility, the gentleman scientist class, basically. I mean, that's an invitation you can't really refuse, is it? Yeah, and he loved the idea of showing off, but even better, showing off to Toffs, because he might get paid yeah. some good money for it. So he's like, mm. finally, my dreams are coming true. I don't need this stupid pub where they're expecting me to count money and and do bad books and, and try and keep the place clean. I'm just going to get paid for looking good and for showing off how strong I am. This is This is where I want to be. So, yeah, he said yes. I want to go there, I want to strip half-naked and flex for these men. That is my reason for being now, Mr. Theophilus. When he went the first time, everyone was so impressed that they kept inviting him back. And any time anyone was doing any kind of biological paper or they were explaining some new research, it was like, and here is our male model that we will use to, (laughs) to demonstrate what we've learnt or to, you know, give an example so he was mm. regular at Royal Society. Do we know if he had, um, or he obviously had the physique, but do we know if his face matched the uh, the body? Do we know if it was a, a, the whole package? There are two There are two woodcuts of him. Um, I don't think he's the most handsome man in the world. No. Personally, there's something going on with his nose. I mean, it, but he had it. He had something. He had something, yeah. He definitely did okay with the ladies. There's no, yeah. there's no denying that he definitely was able to ensnare himself a wife when the time came. So very good. You know, he he wasn't the ugliest person in the world. But Theophilus, he didn't just use Thomas as an occasional model like the other members of the Royal Society did. Reports suggest that he may have offered Thomas a position as a bodyguard slash valet. He's gone up. And I know you're thinking, was was the, the Venn diagram crossing over between carpenter, pub owner, and valet? And I'm not sure what transferable skills there are. But in the I Georgian mean... period, footmen were chosen not based upon their intelligence, not based upon, you know, their practical skills or their problem-solving abilities, but mainly on looks. Yeah, because you want... Good-looking people go far in life, it's a fact. Well, they were essentially being used as um, another way to show off your wealth. So if you had six incredibly handsome footmen, no one was actually looking to see if they were good at their job. They were just seeing the the image that you were presenting. Yeah, they were like, oh, wow, look at those guys. Miss Beaton herself, of household management fame, sarcastically described the, the vogue for footmen as they are chosen without any consideration other than height, shape and the turniture of their calves. 
Mm, and yeah, calves, calves were a big, a big thing. thing. Yeah. Mm. And as you know, so did calves have to be big, or did they have to be muscly? They or had to be. What was the shapely, large and muscly? You wanted that mix, so they wanted to have good definition, but also be quite large. Mm. And I know you will eventually go to the Brighton Pavilion, but one of the things that was pointed out to us because we looked and there are little mirrors at the bottom of the dining rooms that are on a sort of 45 degree angle and when we so asked the guy what they calves. were for yeah so you could surreptitiously check out a calf but also there was a vogue for underneath your hose underneath your you know stockings mm-hmm. wearing fake calves so it was also a way to sort of check to see that your fake calf hadn't slipped around your leg so if you had like a really slim leg, that was like a no go. Yeah, and like, you, you could then wear a, a padded calf. I think I'd do all right. I've got quite chunky, muscly legs. So I think I could, I could, I could. You could get a job could, as a footman in Georgia, yeah. England. Or maybe not my face, but my legs would be fine. Well, again, um, I mean, you know, it depends what you're doing because some footmen, it was a literal description. They would run in front of the carriages to announce that people were coming through and to clear the path. And some of these guys were running up to 60 miles a day. So regardless of if you had calves when you started, you bloody well would after a few weeks on that job. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he Theophilus, he was like, look, you know, I, I'm going around the place. I don't want to be bothered. I think it really helped if I had you stood next to me. Obviously, I'm going to pay you, Thomas. I'm not going to you know, leave you wanting. But if you just stand by me and look menacing, I'm sure I'll be able to go about my business without being disturbed. Yeah, and talking about the calves, actually, you know, I said that um, the, he was akin to being a genetic marvel uh, rather than just a strong guy. Yeah, one of the tricks that he learnt um, to show off his strength was that he could crush the bowl of a tobacco pipe by flexing just the tendons of his hamstrings. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? So he like put it in? He bend his he wasn't knee. Wasn't holding it. He bend oh, his knee. Right, he yeah. put it in the gap between. The, and, and he just then crushed just by it. flexing the tendons it would be crushed and it would break <laughs> that's how strong we're talking it wasn't even like he squeezed the two muscles together it was just the tendons he could do that with anyway whether it was through a formal employment contract or not theophilus began supporting thomas by arranging opportunities to perform and encouraging him to find ever more inventive ways to display his strength okay and it was a good thing too because Thomas was no longer a landlord by this stage. Having Has finally, he been, like, uh, sacked or booted out? Yeah, he, the person who owned the pub was just like, look, I, I get that you, you kind of have a side hustle going, but I feel like your side hustle is now your main hustle and the pub has become the side hustle and I'm losing money, so you're no longer going to be my landlord. I'm going to find somebody who, you know, has a passing desire in running a pub. Yeah. I think that, that would be a positive for me. And it doesn't seem like you're particularly bothered anymore, Thomas. You've not been home in three weeks. <laughs> I've not even seen you. Yeah, you. You occasionally flit in in the afternoon to grab more oil uh, so that you can, you know, rub it into your chest and then you're off again to the Royal Society. So what are we doing here, Thomas? What do you want from me? <laughs> but while, while he'd been neglecting the pub, he'd been honing his act and he'd added a few new feats of strength, which included... Breaking the bowl of a strong tobacco pipe placed between his first and third fingers by pressing his okay. fingers together sideways. Hold on, I'm doing it. Yeah. Okay, right. And he could crush a tobacco pipe doing that. He's a strong chap, isn't he? Lifting a six-foot-long table with his teeth... What? 
He'd rest. What? Yeah, he'd he'd rest. Them. That's not strength, though. That's just having really good teeth. Well, I mean, his his teeth were as strong as the rest of him. But he would he would rest the legs against his knees, hold it in his mouth, and then rock back so that the entire table would come off the floor. What? But that was a bit too easy for him. So he upped the challenge by adding around twenty five kilos of weight to the far end of the table. That's okay. Fine. I just although I okay, he's strong, but that's just good. Dentistry, sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot of calcium involved because another thing he used to do was he'd take his forearm, his left mm-hmm. forearm, and he'd hold it out, and then in his right he'd take uh, a poker. Okay. Uh, so a solid metal bar, essentially. Uh, yep. And he would hit his forearm with it repeatedly until he bent the bar 90 degrees. Wow. Yeah. Okay. He'd then take another poker and bend it around his own neck to make the world's heaviest necklace. Like these pokers, like fire pokers. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're you know an inch they're or so thick. They're, they're, yeah, they're, you know, quarter inch thick. That's a at least. sturdy piece of metal. Yeah. Well, how often you know do you hear? And he beat her to death with a poker. Mm. Most yeah. people, you know, you get hit with a poker, it's breaking bone. It is game turning, over. Yeah, it is slicing you up. He was just whacking his forearm with gay abandon until it bent ninety degrees, and then wrapping one round his neck. So he looked like Mr. T, dripping in thick jewellery. He could also snap a rope two inches thick just by pulling it. I'd get rope burn. Uh, I I, I like to think he probably wore a small glove. Just just on one Mm. hand. A mitten. Yeah, just one mitten. Just says that he didn't get rope burn on his delicate fingers. Yeah. It also turned out that Thomas had a pretty good singing voice. Okay. So he would incorporate a few songs into his show and naturally for such a manly manly man dripping dripping with testosterone he was a basso profundo what's that it is the lowest vocal range that a human can possibly sing in okay thomas's voice was so deep that it was described as scarcely human by those who heard it he so made he's got this deep booming yeah, if you imagine deeper than Barry White. Oh, really? That's that's where he sat in terms of his wow. vocal range. And obviously I didn't because I went really high-pitched then. Mm. Really? Really? That's what Barry White sounds like to Thomas Normally. Topham. Yeah, <laughs> that's the comparison you need. Having perfected his act, though, Thomas accepted an offer from Theopolis to join him on a lecturing tour of the British Isles. Yeah. They started in Ireland in 1737 where, with the encouragement of his friend, Thomas adopted the title The British Sampson and began giving demonstrations in every town they visited, charging a shilling for entry. Okay. Which is quite, you know, it's it's a fair old whack to be charging people to come and see him. But word of mouth got round at some of the amazing stuff he was doing and it turned into a very lucrative tour. Because by the time Thomas Toppen had travelled across Ireland and Scotland, his bank balance was looking far, far bigger than it ever had before. I mean, it would, wouldn't it? Yeah. And as we found with celebrities to this day, as the fame train starts to roll and the bank balance starts to get bigger, the other thing that starts to get bigger is the ego. Yeah. And Thomas Toppen, he, he was already quite a big fan of himself. Things were only made worse in the ego stakes by the good people of Macclesfield, in, near Chester. Okay. Who, for reasons best known to themselves, decided that Thomas's act was so amazing 
that he needed to be presented with a purse full of gold and to be made a burgess of the town immediately. So they, he's already charged them for entry. So yeah. they've already paid him. But they, they were like, this is so good. Quickly, quickly, go, go to the local bank. Right, get all the gold. Okay, right, we'll present that to him. And also, we'll make him a burgess. He can represent local interests, can't he? Yep, yep. You're now part of the administration system of Macclesfield as well, Thomas. Well done, you. You're just so, so he's great. Done, he's done pretty well for himself, hasn't he? Yeah, so he's, you know, he's just picked up a, a very minor um, sort of position on the Macclesfield Council, but he's essentially become part of the administration of Macclesfield and they've given him all the gold. So amazed were the people of Macclesfield by him lifting a, a table with his teeth. Yeah, I still think it's good dentistry. <laughs> it might, might not be his teeth, you're right. It may just be trick dentures that he's had Oh my God, made. scandal. Yeah. Scandal. He's a cheat. <laughs> These aren't even abs. He's just glued sausages to his chest. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's literally like glued a uh, a washboard <laughs> to his chest. So yeah, the people of Macclesfield they didn't help him to keep his feet on the ground. It's like I, I knew I was the best thing since sliced bread, and look at them—they're confirming it. These people get told something enough. Do you know what I mean? You're going to believe it. But yeah, and it didn't it didn't really take long for his ego to spill over because later on, a few days later, he was in Derby giving a performance. And he was giving his performance in the yard of a coaching inn. He was about to perform his bending a poke around his own neck trick when Mm. an ostler asked if he wouldn't mind having the crowd make way for a minute so that he could lead some horses through to the stables. So what's an ostler? Sorry. Ah, I'm glad you asked because I did bother to look at what an ostler was. It's someone who ostles. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. No, an ostler is literally a person employed by an inn to look after the horses of okay. all the people staying in the inn. So this man had every right to politely ask to be allowed to do his job because it's like, I yeah. work in this yard and those stables and you've just turned it into an impromptu theatre, Yeah, which is fine. Get I'm not, not going to tell yeah. you to get out. I'm just asking, can you just ask the crowd to move for a few minutes just while I while lead I... these horses through because that's my job Yeah, and you're in my workplace, essentially. I don't want to interrupt the fun you're having, but... Come on, these horses are tired. They need a good brushing down. Need some oats. Let's be let's be nice. But the mild mannered request interrupted Thomas's patter, and he decided to take it as a personal insult. He decided what he needed to do was to teach this ostler a lesson by making a change to his normal act. And instead of bending the poker around his own neck, he went over to the ostler and bent it around his neck instead. What? But he's not got the muscle strength. No. Has he killed him? <sighs> no, no, no. He, he bent it round, so he's basically now put, um, you know, a halter around this guy's neck. And of course, the ostler, he did not have the strength to remove his new accessory and had to beg for assistance from members of the audience to much jeering and laughter. That's horrible. I liked this man up until this point. Well, he's, he's now hitting the, you know, asking for a ridiculous rider stage of fame. Seeing as he'd gotten a big reaction from humiliating someone, Thomas then asked the audience to point out the fattest person there. And this just so happened to be a local vicar called Mr. Chambers, Mm. who was about 27 stone. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was a big boy. Yeah, yeah. He could just give out more of God's love than the average Mm. vicar. 
So, you know... Because there was more of him. Yeah, there was more of him. And he was probably, Mm. you know, well-liked by his flock. But on this particular day, in this particular, you know, yard of a coaching inn, he was now going to be the butt of many, many jokes uh, about his, his rather large, rotund appearance. So this is the same event? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the same event in Derby. So he's, he's seen that he got a big laugh by humiliating one guy, and then he's like, "Oh, I know what I can do. I'll, I'll find someone else. someone else. What a horrible man. So after he made these jokes, he then walked over to the vicar and picked him up with one hand. I mean, that is impressive, but still. And I'm, I'm not sure if he asked the vicar if, if he was you know willing to become part of this show, but he was. That's he was brave doing that to a man of God in this day and age. I guess, yes, there was a lot more um, risk associated with it, or it was perceived to be a lot more risky to start mocking a, a man of God in this, this era than it would have been today. Yeah. I'm sure if you asked to lift the, you know, uh, Richard Coles... As long as you asked him nicely, I'm sure he'd be well up for the this Reverend kind of... Richard Coles. He, he was like a massive druggie in that band, wasn't he? He was, but he, you know, he he turned it around, and now he just likes cakes. Isn't he? He's he's obviously he's gay chap, but he's not. He lives with his partner, but he they're not allowed him. to. Um, they're not allowed to be intimate whilst he's in his position at I, the church. I did not know that I, I mm, I'm that. pretty sure I read that on I think it was a BBC4 thing um, well if yeah. the relationship's fulfilling for the both of them I don't see that as being a problem mm. just let love be love come on guys and do you know what if you see a fat vicar just don't, don't pick, pick him, him up. up just let him go about his day or, or if you are going to pick him up ask him politely if he <laughs> wouldn't mind good, to be sir. yeah lifted <laughs> And if he says no, just accept it and move on. There's other things to do with your day. Yeah. Thomas returned to London and continued to behave exactly like a diva. After getting into a verbal slanging match with a cart driver, he decided to hold on to the back of the cart to stop the horse from moving off until he received a full apology. Though you assume he was probably completely in the wrong. He was just doing it to be a bit of a bully. And yeah, he's coming. He's coming across massively as a bully right now. It's like this is this is another opportunity to prove I'm strong enough to stop a horse. Mm. So I'm going to do that because there's people walking up and down the street and they're going to be impressed by how strong I am. So I'll, I'll manufacture a reason to be angry at this poor cart driver who's just trying to get on with his day. He was definitely in the wrong, was Thomas, when he decided to pick up a watchman's box while the exhausted watchman was asleep inside on Chiswell Street, Islington. He carried the box a third of a mile before dumping it over the wall of Bunhill Field's burial ground. Why did he do that? That's such a horrible thing to do. For the lols. Mm. Because he could. So, um, a a watchman's box, it looks a bit like an outdoor lav. It's like a tiny little hut, but it's where they go just to get out of the rain or to grab five minutes, or in extremis, they could... So was somebody in it at the time? Yeah, yeah, there was a watchman inside it just trying to grab, you know, a couple of minutes sleep standing up through the middle of a long shift. And he saw that, picked the entire box up with the guy inside and dumped it over the side of Bunhill Fields Burial Ground. Which, I I had a look, Bunhill Fields Burial Ground. It's the final resting place of John Bunyan. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, Daniel Defoe. Robinson Crusoe fame. 
and William Blake, amongst others. So this watchman was at least in illustrious company, you know, being yeah. in a box in that cemetery. Yeah, but he was still alive. He just wanted to... Yeah. I assume he's still alive after this. Now, I would have thought that would have led to an immediate arrest, but somehow Topham was able to avoid the law, and it was probably because the watchman's box hit the ground door side down, and he, you know, he had to wait until somebody heard his screams get out. That's and came and came and helped him out of that situation. But yeah, it it goes to show it went from you know stuff that's at least tangentially related to his act to just vandalism by this stage. Hmm. So he's now definitely got that rock star ego, and to be fair to him, he's got the skill set because he is you know he is the equivalent of a world's strongest man. Mm. All Thomas Topham needed was the grand stage on which to secure his legendary status as at least Britain's strongest man. Okay. His opportunity was finally to arrive due to events that occurred 5,250 miles away in Panama. Okay. Because in 1739, Captain Vernon of the British Navy decided that he was going to prove a point. A few years earlier, in 1727, Vernon had been part of a massive British blockade that had attempted to stop the Spanish treasure fleet from leaving the settlement of Portobello on the Spanish main. Portobello Road, Portobello Road. Ah. I, I know, I know that's not, but I just like Bedknobs and Broomsticks. No, it so. is. It is linked oh, to Portobello okay. Road. Oh, there you go. The blockade had been costly and had failed miserably, an outcome that Vernon blamed loudly and completely on the incompetence of the men in charge. For over a decade afterwards, Vernon would insist to everyone who would listen that he could take the fortified port with only six ships and minimal fuss. Okay. And now that he'd been made commander of the Jamaica station, he finally had the opportunity to put his money where his mouth was. Right. And true to his word, he took just six ships and attacked Portobello at dawn on November 20th, 1739 in a lightning raid immediately taking a harbour fort called Castillo del Herero or the Iron Castle his men pulled down the Spanish flag and raised the British colours before anyone within the fort realised that they were under attack and most of the half asleep Spaniards provided practically no resistance because they either retreated assuming that there were far more British than there were because they'd already managed Mm -hmm. to get within the fort or by surrendering and in all, only three people died. So it was like a lightning attack. Yeah, and they gave it up. And it, what he'd said, I can take it with six ships and no force. He's like, there you go. Had six, six ships, three people died on either side. And we now own Portobello. You're welcome. Now, if only you'd come to me a decade before, you know, we wouldn't have had all that force, would we? The action was hailed as a triumph of British ingenuity and daring. And it is the reason that Portobello Road in London and the Portobello District of Edinburgh got their names. Ah, okay. In celebration. So this thing is because these these names are so synonymous with like London and Britain, mm. but obviously a lot of these names come from other places. Mm. And you have so. Captain Vernon to thank for Portobello Road and the song in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Tangentially, it's all down to Captain Vernon and the I size love of his that balls. Film so much (laughs) yeah yes uh yes so in 1741 the now admiral vernon was about to embark on a similarly daring series of attacks at havana in cuba chagres in panama and cartagena in colombia 
Thomas saw this as the perfect opportunity to hijack the public interest in Vernon for his own ends, and he invited the Admiral to attend a special event he was going to put on in honour of his success in Portobello. Okay. Sort of like a grand send-off. He's like, to to show how appreciative we are before you go and conquer more. We are, as in the public. Yeah. I am going okay. to do something that makes it all about me. In yeah. front of the Apple Tree Inn, which is somewhere in London, Thomas had a two-tiered stage erected. On the lower part Fancy. of the stage, three barrels, or hogsheads, of water were placed on a pallet. Overall, this was estimated to have weighed 606 kilograms, over three times Thomas's own weight. Okay. So it must be bigger than, like, 14 stone at this point. No, no, he never really topped out above 14 stone. That's impressive, that, to keep that consistent weight. Mm. Good for him. Ropes were fixed to each corner of the pallet and attached to a harness which was placed on the top tier of the stage, where, on the morning of May 28, 1741, Thomas Topham emerged to rapturous applause. Placing the harness over his shoulders and gripping the ropes tightly, Thomas performed a standing deadlift, holding the pallet a few inches off the platform for several seconds before allowing it to slam back down with a hollow boom. Now, to put this into context, although it's not exactly the same in terms of the way that you lift it, the current deadlift world record is 501 kilograms, or 105 kilograms lighter than what Thomas Topham lifted on that day. Impressive. So he is literally the world's strongest man ever. At, at least at that moment, it's highly likely that he was the strongest man in the world and he 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 took that risk of putting all of that weight there in front of the biggest crowd he'd ever perform in front of and he he rose to the challenge he smashed it he may be a diva but when the chips are down he delivers the goods Mm. so having secured his legacy at the grand old age of 31 thomas decided that the time was right to semi-retire from being a strong man he got himself a wife and a new pub called the Bell and Dragon on Hogs Lane in Shoreditch. Okay. Shoreditch, very fancy now. Not sure if it was back then. but um, Not as desirable. I mean, Isling- Islington as well. Very fancy now. Probably not so much back then. Back in the time. Mm. Um, his patron and number one fan, John Theophilus Desagulares. 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 John Theodopoulos Desagliers. Christina Aguilera. (laughs) John Theodopoulos Christina Aguilera died in 1744 at the age of 60 from complications of gout, which is a very posh way to die, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, don't you only get gout if you like eat lots of rich foods yeah it's it's a rich person's disease so it's you know he died in a very rich person kind of way hmm. but this pretty much ended any any residual thoughts of thomas going on another tour of the british isles because he was like you know I, I i basically just followed uh theophilus around and while yeah. he was giving a lecture i'd go to the local pub or the local coaching inn and, and i'd do my show but if if i've not got theophilus sort of making the bookings I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go along with that. That sounds like work. Yeah. And I just want to lift I... things and look good. Yeah. He still, despite the fact that he semi-retired, he would give regular performances in his pub, still charging a shilling for entry as he had been doing his entire career. However, he also bothered to do things like stock rotation, 
invoicing, and actually selling beer to the patrons, which ensured that the pub actually made enough money to be a going concern, which was nice. Mm-hmm. And you feel that the, the instruction of a good woman probably helped there. You know, having a wife Yeah, it kept him of... grounded and levelled him out, yeah. As he entered his 30s, he was described as being a mild-mannered person, quite a jovial type, who walked oh, really? with a so slight... so he's changed. Limp. Yeah. So he's changed, yeah. And I, I think that walked with a slight limp was probably telling. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd obviously... The strain on his knees of lifting all of those heavy weights... It. Yeah. ...was, you know... Because it wasn't like he was using strapping and stuff to kind of protect his joints or... You know, he was. It was all just. And he probably big wasn't health training. and safety, like bending his knees and stuff. It was probably like lots of arching and, yeah. yeah just... You want to lift with a twisting, jerking movement. That's the way you do it. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about the crunching sound. That just means it's working. <laughs> so yeah, he, you know, he probably on some level felt well. That was the last big thing I could do. So rather than diminishing returns and you know trying to relive the glory days, I'll just retire gracefully and just do some of the easier things like rolling up the pewter plates and cracking pipes between my tendons the simple times yeah the tasks that anyone can do you know that don't require a a two-tiered stage to be built in front of an admiral those kinds of things though he may have toned down his diva-like behaviors thomas topham was still a man who had issues of anger and impulse control and sadly both of these were to come to the fore on august the 8th 1749 It was on this date that Thomas found out that his wife was having an affair. She's, I mean, brave to do that with this angry, big chap around. You know, a man asked him politely to to move out the way and ended up having a massive lump of metal wrapped around his neck. Mm. That was just for a polite request. So finding out that... Yeah, someone That's has mine. broken their, their vow. Yes, yeah. and you imagine he, you know, if he, he's very macho, he's very manly. That that idea of no, my woman, yeah, probably was forefront of his mind. You can't play with read, my toys. I read a study. God, no, I can't even remember what it was, but it's um, men are less likely to forgive women who have affairs, whereas women are more likely to forgive men that have affairs. Well, because the entire social narrative is, oh, boys will be boys. They need to go out and sow the wild oats. I don't know what the, um, I don't know what the the reasoning behind it was, but like at this study over, I don't know, it was like over ten years or something. The percentage well, it was must, a lot it must higher. Be social conditioning, because a, a woman sleeps around, she's a slut. A guy sleeps around, way he's a bit of a jack the lad. He's a bit of a yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, you know, the connotations even that shaming, yeah. yeah. So I, I can see that that would be the way. It shouldn't mm. be, you know. If you if you want to be polyamorous, if you want to have multiple partners, that's fine. Be upfront about it and don't pretend at monogamy if that's not Absolutely. something you're into. Absolutely, no, I, I agree. However, you know they they've made marriage vows where they definitely overtly said that forsaking all others. So you can see why he might be a bit upset. Mm. Now, it's safe to assume that he didn't find out his wife uh, was having an affair by catching them in the act. As if he had, there would likely have been another body found. Another body? Yes. So it's more probable that his wife had decided to tell him that she was leaving him to be with another man. Okay. And, much like with the ostler over a decade before, Thomas immediately saw red. He picked up a knife from the sideboard and stabbed his wife 
multiple times. <sighs> Seeing the blood all over the floor and the very, very still body of his wife, he realised that he would likely be tried and executed for murder. Mm. You know, it's going to be very hard to explain this away. Who who else had reason to harm your wife? You know, he's got no alibi. He's he's yeah. holding the murder weapon. It was definitely you, sir. Yeah. So he decided the best thing to do would be to turn the knife on himself rather than to face the hangman. Okay. Yeah, you know, he he he's got. He figured he had a choice. He could either die on his own terms, or he could uh, go for the fun of slow hanging because the long drop had not yet been made a thing. So it would have uh, been yeah, slow strangulation. Yeah, probably on the back of a cart at Tyburn and having the cart just slowly pulled away, uh, so that he could twitch around for fifteen minutes or so. God, okay. poo himself as they do. Uh, Amazingly, considering his strength. The wounds he inflicted on himself were not immediately fatal. And he continued in agonising pain for another two days before he finally died of his wounds on August the 10th, 1749. Aged only 39. Okay, so slightly older than us. Yep. But what a life. Lived lived and died by his own rules. Hmm. He's an outlaw. He's an outlaw. And it... uh... Until a certain point, I actually found him quite a lovable rogue, mm. and then and then uh, he crossed the line with the the horse chap, the ostler. Was that the point? As soon as as soon as he'd yeah, that really annoyed a me. Mild mannered uh, mm. horse groomer. That was it. Mm. Yeah. No, you don't do that. Horses horses were like the cars of the day. People needed those things to be in tip top condition, and you were you're preventing that from a, occurring. No, bully, bully. It was, yeah. It's, it, Definitely, definitely a bit of a bully. Yeah. But the problem was, it's like, who's actually going to challenge him? Because it's like, well, if you stand up to bullies, they're not all that strong, really. It's like, oh, God, he is. <laughs> yeah, he will crush me and everyone. <laughs> yes, and he'll do it in some kind of... Yes, he, he crushed me using only his thighs. He's a bigger boy. I can't do it. <laughs> no! He is the definition of the bigger boy, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. He's following me. Slowly. It's even worse. He's taking I don't any. Time. I don't really recall anyone in school being like a bigger boy. Like obviously there were there were people that were older, but I can't I can't recall someone being of like super buffing. Uh, we had a lad called Jamie, and he was he was like the I was not yet five foot tall, and he was already topping six foot, and he was huge. But luckily, mm. he was lovely. Oh, he, that's good. He had all of the strength, but he chose to use it for good. See, I, I mean, I. I was always quite tall, like, in school. Like, I, I grew kind of before everyone else. So mm. I was, like, always the tall kid. And now I'm, like, I'm 5'11", so I'm... The people like, caught normal. up and you're now next yeah, middle yeah. end of the pack. Exactly. So, but, um, yeah, so I, maybe maybe I was the bigger boy. <sighs> people were scared yeah. of you. I mean, I am terrifying, as you can tell by this podcast. So anyway, Go. yeah, <laughs> back to dead Thomas Topham because while it's a matter of fact that he definitely committed suicide he had not actually committed murder Okay. because unbeknownst to Thomas Topham his wife, though seriously wounded had not been killed by his attack this is like a Romeo and Juliet situation 
well, well except of. the fact that she's not going to follow him into the suicide pact. Um, yes, she went on to have a full recovery from her wounds. So obviously oh, he was in agonising pain and nobody thought to tell him that his wife had survived. So as far as he was concerned, he'd murdered her. But she'd yeah. been taken off uh, to receive medical attention and the strongest man in the world, armed with a knife, had not managed to, to do it. So it's either there was some restraint there or she's more superhuman than he yeah, was. Or she, yeah, or she is some kind of cyborg and yeah, is actually the, future, the stronger one of the relationship. The future is female. Mm. Missing the opportunity for some callback humour, Thomas Topham was not buried in Bunhill Fields in a coffin in the shape of a watchman's box. That which, would have been brilliant, though. I think it, they missed an open goal there. Yeah. You know, give that, give that watchman a sense of uh, catharsis, seeing his tormentor forever stuck in you know Bunhill cemetery with in a watchman's box would have been perfect yeah instead he was buried in the churchyard of st leonard's shoreditch is he still there he is still there his grave is still there i'm surprised he was allowed to be buried in a churchyard though considering i might go kick suicide. his kick his grave down or get a horse to kick his grave down no, the horse like, would try, but it, it, it would stand steadfast in, in, in the face of a horse. You'd need mm. at least two horses. As we know, Thomas Topham is still, to this day, producing one horsepower. One horsepower. Yeah. So you need... Even maybe, in the ground. Yeah, a horse and a goat <laughs> would do it. You know, you just need to get over that one horsepower I strength. I bloody love a goat. I mm. love it. Like, they're my favourite. I don't know how much goat power he was producing. I never saw, saw him pull against a whole team of goats that were lashed together like huskies. Oh, I'd love that. No, I wouldn't actually. I'd like the goats to be free. Mm. Oh, we'd let them free afterwards. You know, mm. we just bring them together for this one event. I might get a pet goat. I think that would be a great idea in a flat. Mm. I see no problem. <laughs> I assume this garden's communal. No, well, it's not really a garden <laughs> anymore either. So I think we're fine. It's just a mud mud heap with yeah. a goat stood there chewing the last of your grass. And bleating. <laughs> They'd be like that devil worshipper upstairs getting his goat on my lawn. The British Museum still has one of the pewter plates rolled up by Topham in their collection, complete ah. with the signature from John Theophilus Christina Aguilaria III, <laughs> etched into the side. Though apparently this is not currently on display. So if you do want to see it, you would have to write to the British Museum ahead of time. Uh, and ask if if they couldn't, you know, get get it ready for you to go and view. But they do mm. still have one. You get your, get given your white gloves. Could anyone do that? Can you write to a museum and be like, I would like to see this object? Please. I think you need to give them a reason. But yeah, if it's part of their collection and and you're you, you know you're doing, I just some make kind up that I was writing a book. I'd be like, I'm writing a book and I need to see this. Yeah, object. you could try. Mm. Or yeah. I I, I wonder if you could just write to them and go, I'm. You know, I'm writing a podcast on this thing and I think it'd be really cool if I could see this artifact. I'm coming on this day. Would it but be possible to, to view it I if did, I book in? I didn't, I didn't write this, you did, so therefore you would need to... Well, right. C- please, can you let my friend look at this computer play? <laughs> Ollie cannot participate in PE today. He has a bad leg. Oh, my, I'm taking the role of your father in this. I'm just writing mm-hmm. to various people on your behalf. Yeah. Ollie would like a raise, please. He's worked very hard, and he did finish the MAPA training, so he can now successfully dodge 
and break away if somebody slowly approaches him from the front with their arms outstretched in order to choke him. Yes. In a very robotic manner. Yeah, in a a very standardised, flowy manner. However, if they're not at a complete right angle, then he, he will flail around. He will die. Yeah, they will be deaf. They yeah. didn't. They didn't teach how to do it from anything other than directly forwards and back. How to not die? So yes, that was the story of Thomas Topham, uh, considered by many to be the first true British strongman. I want to see the wood carving of him lifting the hogsheads. Yeah. Uh, if you search Thomas Topham, you will be able to see it. It is the how, first image. How are we spelling up. his last name? T O Topham, as in the Top best Ham. pig. Uh, why has the fat controller come up? Because he's no, that's Topham yeah. Hat. That's he's Yahoo. Sir Topham Hat, the no, fat controller. Not. Is he? That's his. It, the fat controller's real name is Sir Topham Hat. No, not did in you my not know day. that? Not in my day. No, he, he was always called always... the fat controller. The Fat Controller was not what his mother and father christened him. He was Sir Topham Hat. He was the Fat Controller. That's just so... what the engines called him, because they were all bullies and fat shamers. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.